Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This is the Starship Sova, everybody. Welcome, hello and welcome to Oral Delights, show number 118. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. So hello everyone, hope everyone is fine and dandy. Yes, another show, and today we have like... I mentioned a while ago that, you know, everyone kind of puts Ted Chang, you know, on this pedestal, and rightly so, do you know what I mean? It's, you know, he's probably the best short story writer out there, you know, but there is some, you know, right up there as good as, you know, and today I've got one of them writers, Kathleen Ann Goonan, whose stories are just fantastic, I think. Like I say, I mentioned this a while ago on the show, but it's just taken this while to kind of get the story sorted out, get the artwork sorted out. As you know, we have some artwork to go with this show, end of the month, so do please have a look over there. I'll give you a heads up what's coming in today's show. We have the editorial by my good self. Then we have the first of the new little sections in the show. We have a news section by my good self. And that's just what's happened this week in news. And they're just short, you know, I don't know how actually I'm saying just short. I don't know how long I'm going to ramble on for, but it's I'm hoping each week where, you know, if any news in kind of science fiction literature, you know, any in the kind of policy, I guess, I'll just mention it away. We have a new another new section to the show. And it's called Explained in Sixty Seconds. And this is by Megan Argo. Now, what this is, and this is just fantastic. Again, for, and this is, I've been probably after Megan for a <laughs> Well, I was in contact with Megan for a long time now, actually, to try and get Megan on the show and, you know, do something. Megan is, what she doesn't know about kind of space and the universe is no one's business. And, you know, she 
podcasts over there, Jodrell Bank, you know what I mean? He's got a massive podcast over there. And I've always wanted to kind of a little bit of kind of spacey news, you know, or just something to do with actually the, the universe space itself, you know, the, the real kind of space, you know, Saturn, Jupiter, the universe, you know, red holes, red holes, you know, anything like that. So, you know, over the kind of years, we've kind of been off and on talking, me and Megan, and eventually we got together and it was actually Megan's idea. She's come up with this great little idea. And it's basically, the title is Explained in 60 Seconds. So she's going to pick a subject and explain it in 60 seconds. But it doesn't, <laughs> this one didn't run to 60 seconds. So it's, it's probably not going to be 60 seconds. It'll be a bit, little bit longer. What, what the hell? Do you know what I mean? But the good thing about it is, as well, Megan said, if you have like an, an idea, you know, or something you want explained, write into me, do you know, and drop us an email and say, what about, you know, the, the, the planet Mercury, you know, and Megan will go in detail and, and within, you know, this new little section, she'll explain what's going on. So look out for that. I'll give you a little bit more blurb on Megan a little bit later. We've also got a little intro to Memory Dog by Kathleen herself. So do listen out for that, which is just fascinating. We have the, the main fiction, Memory Dog, a fantastic story there. Fact article by JJ Campanella brings us the, the science news for January. And like I say, this month has got the, the artwork as well. And cover art is by Jarell Dye. And I'll just give you a, now, you know, like I say, if you have a look at this artwork, what a stunning bit of work this is. I'll give you a little heads up for Jarell who's done this artwork. He lives outside Boston in Massachusetts with his roommate and two fabulously friendly cats. Splitting his work between illustrations, work from home and his studio. He's also a media consultant where he manages a massive image library and works with development on various marketing projects. He's got a master's degree in performance art. And he's been known to put on a show with custom code video effects. He's been a freelance illustrator now for about eight years. And he says it's slowly becoming his main source of income. <laughs> not from me, it's not Jarell. He says he's currently working on his own graphic novel entitled One Android. He says it's one part Pinocchio, one part Faust and one part The Fly. The first book of several should be coming out sometime early 2010. So do look out for that. You can look at Jarell's work over at jarelldie.com. Again, I'll put a link on the site. You know, if anyone wants to go over there, please do. It is a great bit of artwork. So I think we'll kick off with the editorial this week. And the editorial is simply, you know, I've come to realise how important this show is to me. <laughs> in you know, and I know that sounds quite strange, but it is. You know, this is this show and, you know, getting, you know, kind of science fiction out and getting my voice out and communicating with everyone like that. It is a, it's a, a, such an important part of my life, do you know? You know, I've met so many new people out there, you know, who's, you know, helped me so much, you know, within this kind of Starship sofa, you know, what, it, what it's turned into be. It's what's, what I'm kind of aiming for here is what I'm trying for with, you know, just seeing this little editorial is just how much I appreciate everyone. And I'm, I'm on about, like, the listeners this time. Do you know what I mean? It's like, if it wasn't for everyone, just listening. Do you know what I mean? And just be there. And like I say, the numbers are growing all the time. The, the, the last big one we had, or the kind of highest score to date now, was the Cory Doctorow show, which kind of tipped over the scales at over 7,000 listeners. Do you know? And like I say... 
I just appreciate, honestly, everyone just kind of, you know, and never mind donating, never mind, you know, the kind of, I'm always putting on to people, you know, for work and everything like that. But when it comes down to the bottom line, is I honestly want to thank everyone for just listening. Do you know, just being a part of Starship Sofa, you've probably never emailed, and you never wonder, you know, <laughs> you might not email a daft Geordie anyways, but... Honestly, from the bottom of your heart, I really do appreciate you just kind of hanging around, sticking around and listening. Because, you know, that's one thing. If if there wasn't nobody there, if, you know, it kind of figures were starting to go and downhill and I would be, you know, it, it just would play on your mind and it would be a horrible kind of thing. You know, like I say, I, I kind of built this up. But I'm, I'm so glad, even though it's getting bigger, you know, I'm so glad we're still as close. Do you know what I mean? I feel that. I know that sounds quite weird. And... You know, we'll probably 99% of everyone that's here will never meet each other. But I still honestly, honestly, so much appreciate just kind of just listening to what, what I'm doing. Do you know what I mean? Just appreciate what I'm doing. I get some lovely emails every day. Do you know what I mean? And trust us, you know what I mean? I, I I've said this a few times. Email, email us your you know, starships over at gmail.com. Sometimes I do get like a little bit low in, you know, I've still got when I kind of mention. In a while ago, you know, I kind of anxiety kicked in, and it's certainly not that bad now. I'm living, you know, if everyone was listening a while ago when I was mentioning it, you know, I had me little kind of scale, you know, one being a, you know, one being kind of to take away a basket case, and ten being pleasantly, you know, nothing wrong at all. Well, I'm kind of living now in a kind of an eight zone. Do you know what I mean? Touching nine, you know, it it's not bad at all, but it's. It's so nice, you know, like I said, that's kind of, this show, this, this environment is kind of, well, oh, I don't know how many percent, you know, well, again, 99% probably contributed to, to kind of getting over that or living with it, you know, in a reasonable time. And it's down to you, do you know what I mean? It's down to everyone that's kind of sticking around and just listening. I, again, so appreciate you just hanging around and just enjoying what I'm doing. Fantastic. Please keep, you know, keep listening. So we'll jump into one of our new sections on the show, and like I say, this is going to happen hopefully each week. If there's nothing happening in the show, do you know what I mean? Then or nothing happening out and about in the kind of science fiction world, it's not, no point doing a news section. But normally, there's a little bit of you know news kicking around, and I just want to fill like the first few minutes of the show with the news of what's happened. This week, I'll give you what's going on this week in the kind of the broader world. The finalists have now up for the 2009 Philip K. Dick Award. They are Bitter Angels by C.L. Anderson, Ballantine Books, The Prisoner, Carlos J. Cortez, The Repossession Mambo by Eric Garcia, The Devil's Alphabet by Daryl Gregory, Siberia Bad Days by Ian MacDonald. Centuries Ago and Very Fast by Rebecca Orr. And Prophets by S. Andrew Swan. So like I say there, the 2009 Philip K. Dick Awards. The shortlist. Another bit of news is Cory Doctorow's, if you've been on the kind of tour.com site, you'll have seen his makers, the serialized, well, his book that's been serialised over there. Well, each time there's been a serialization come on there's been like this little kind of picture that's went to it and it, it's it's all kind of now been built and it's like a, a tile it's like a game and that's now ready it's finished complete so if you go over to tour.com you'll see this kind of 
what they're calling it, a make as a tile game. Horror Writers Association, this is going down Larry's Street there. The Horror Writers Association names recipients of a Lifetime Achievement Award go to Brian Lumley and William F. Nolan. I tried to get, a while ago, I tried to get a William F. Nolan story because a long, long time ago, I used to be kind of really into the kind of the horror writing. And reading everything by, you know, like kind of the horror writers. Brian Lumley is there. I read all his kind of necroscope volumes. William F. Nolan, I've tried to get a touch of. And, you know, he's getting on now, do you know what I mean? But, and he hasn't got email and, you know, you had to kind of go through a friend of a friend to drive down to his house to get, you know, but never heard anything by, by, you know, back from him. So, but anyways, congratulations, Lifetime Achievement Award, Brian Lumley and William F. Nolan for the Horror Writers Association. Just in the kind of tech side, Amazon announces 70% royalty option for Kindle publishing, which is, that sounds great news. There was as well on the tech side, the first ever Twitter from space. So do look out for that. I haven't, I'm not actually following them. I just kind of, I've seen someone had kind of retwittered that, uh, that bit of news. If, you know, you're on Twitter as well, I've made a commitment. I have made a bloody commitment to kind of get back on Twitter there. So come over and follow Starship Sova. That's all you just type in Starship Sova. You'll find me. And there's lots of kind of bits and pieces of news that I'm actually sticking up there as well. So do look out for that. What I noticed on what I thought was really funny on, it was on actually Boing Boing and it was someone on the Divine Arts website has kind of knocked together a set of t-shirts, you know, the, these anti-Twilight t-shirts that have been called, calling for a return to kind of vampire fundamentals, biting, rendering, tearing and terrorising and, and not snogging and crying. And it's like, these t-shirts look great as well, so have a look out for them on Boing Boing. Now, can I guess it, you could call them the Hugos of Australia. The the Aurealis Awards have just been the finalists and the winners have been announced for 2009. For Best Science Fiction Novel, Andrew McGann, Wonders of a Goddess World. Best Science Fiction sh- Short Story, Peter M. Ball, Clockwork, Patchwork and Ravens. That was in Apex magazine. Best Fantasy Novel goes to Trudy Caravan, Magician's Apprentice. Best Fantasy Short Story, Joint Winners. Christopher Green, Father's Kill, that's from Beneath Ceaseless Skies. And Ian McHugh, Once a Month on a Sunday from Andromeda Spaceways In Flight magazine. Best Anthology, this is what I'm kind of, this is the one that kind of hits my boat, you know, and sets it away. Best Anthology, Jonathan Stratton's Eclipse 3 from Nightshade Books, you know, this Eclipse, this is where Ted Chang kind of horns his teeth, you know, I think it was in. Eclipse 2, that's... Ted Chang had a story in there. And best collection goes to Greg Ian Egan's Oceanic from Glance. There you go. That is the RLS Awards for 2009. Another bit of great news out there for, in the kind of science fiction industry is Charles Tan, who was a guest over on one, my show, the Sofa Notes Award. He's a Filipino's blogger and, you know, kind of knows everything about kind of science fiction. You know, he has the, the website Bibliophile Stalker. Great site there for kind of getting news, up-to-date news, everything like that. Charles Tanner has been picked to co-edit the Next World Anthology, Volume 2. This is the one, this that came out this year, that Lavi Tadar did. Now, I'm guessing maybe co-edit, maybe he's, he's working with Lavi to kind of sort out them stories, but that's great news, Charles Tan, excellent. And the finalists for the 2010 British Science Fiction Awards are up. For Best Novel, there is China Merville's City and the City. 
Stephen Baxter's Ark, Adam Roberts' Yellow Blue Tiberia, and Ursula K. Le Guin's Lavina. I haven't read any of them, <laughs> but you know, I've actually played a few of them people there. Short, best short story Ian Watson and Roberto Quiglia, The Beloved Time and Their Lives. Eugene Foster, Sinner Baker, Fabulous Priest, Red Mask, Black Mask, Gentleman Beast from Inner Zone. If you re- look over at Escape Pod, that's right. Our good friend Larry Santoro narrated that story over there, and, and he got loads of great comments about that story, so do look out for that. Ian Waits, the assistant. Ian MacDonald, Visu and the Cat Circus. Johnny and Emmy Lou get married. And Dave Hutchinson's Push. There you go. And tacking on the back of those little bits of news there, Starships Over will not be recording any of the awards this year. You know how I kind of tackle some of the kind of, I think it best science fiction awards and actually i did the i think it was the nebulas last year well it's too much hassle to be quite honest i'm just getting too old and getting too old for kiddies game so i'm not going to do any of those you know like kind of short stories and get them all done in like one day and one week no i'm going to step down from that um pillar there and hand hand the baton on to someone who else wants to do that Two more little bits of news. John Scalzi, the science fiction writer, has or is running for president of the Science Fiction Writers of America, which, for me, that is a good thing. And I just heard the other day, which is great news, Anne Vandermeer has been promoted to editor-in-chief of Weird Tales magazine. So congratulations, Anne. Well deserved. That is the news for this week. So the fact article explained in 60 seconds... Megan Argo, this is going to be a great new little section, just a short one, but you know, every month Megan said she's going to kind of send one over, and fingers crossed that'll happen, you know, if Megan's too busy, you know, obviously that's, that's, you know, terrible shame, but hopefully, and don't forget, if you have an idea, you know, you want something explained to you, send it over to me, starshipsover at gmail.com. I'll give a little bio on Megan. She's a postdoctorate, so affiliation changes fairly regular, but she says she's currently a postdoctorate fellow at Curtin University in, of Technology in Perth, Australia. She did a PhD at General Bank Observatory prior to that. You can find if you go to rigel.org.uk, you will get in touch with Megan. So you can either drop Megan a list, you know, kind of an idea, or starships at gmail.com. And, you know, I was saying, could it be anything? You know, like the universe, you know, any, she says, you know, a, a kind of chosen field is astronomy in space. What if there's something quirky comes up, you know what I mean? What's the deep, deepest ocean? Why can't you dive down? You know, anything like that, you know, she'll consider it. So please send some ideas over. Megan, explained in 60 seconds. Explained in 60 seconds. Red Dwarf. What is a red dwarf? Now, we're not talking small rouge spaceships here. Oh no, we're talking stars. You probably already know that the sun is a star, and a fairly ordinary one at that. But there are many others that are much larger, and huge numbers that are much, much smaller. So a red dwarf is a particular kind of star. They're pretty small and light, although still heavy enough that nuclear fusion, the process which powers all stars, is still going on in the core. They are defined as having a mass no more than 40% of the sun's, This means that the nuclear fusion reactions in the core proceed at a pretty slow rate. This has a number of consequences. Firstly, it means that red dwarfs are comparatively cool. Their typical surface temperatures are less than 4,000 degrees Kelvin. 
and while this may sound hot, it's still 2,000 degrees cooler than the surface temperature of our own sun. The second important consequence is that they use up their fuel very slowly. Stars are powered by the fusion of hydrogen to create helium, and the lifetime of a star is determined by how much hydrogen it has, and how quickly it gets used up. The sun is already 5 billion years old, and it probably has enough fuel for another 4.5 billion years. Red dwarfs use up their fuel so slowly that their lifetimes are predicted to be greater than the current age of the universe. Red dwarfs are one of the most common types of star in the galaxy, but because their fusion reactions go so slowly, they don't actually generate much light, making them very hard to spot. Despite some of the Sun's nearest neighbours being red dwarfs, Proxima Centauri, the closest star, is of this type, you would still need a telescope to find them. But as puny as they are, they're not quite the smallest type of star. That accolade belongs to the brown dwarfs. There you go. Megan, thank you so much. Look out for next month's Explaining 60 Seconds. So we come on to the main fiction of the day, which is Memory Dog by Kathleen Ann Goonan. So just before the main fiction, I just want to play this little intro to Memory Dog. This is from Kathleen Ann Goonan. Uh, hi, I'm Kathleen Ann Goonan, and I've been asked to say a few words about how I came to write Memory Dog. Uh, when I finish a novel, I usually celebrate with a burst of pent-up short stories. I wrote Memory Dog when In War Times, which won the Campbell Award in 2007, was turned in. Uh, Memory Dog was subsequently published in Asimov's and Hartwell and Kramer's Best SF of the Year and came in second for the Sturgeon Award. Not surprisingly, it's about memory and a dog. I've always been fascinated by the phenomenon of memory, which is, when you think about it, all that humans are. It's all we really have, except for the present moment. But in the present moment, our consciousness continuously accesses our past. This shared dream, the novel I'll turn in next week, I, I really will, is also about the neurobiology of memory, how it's created, how it's stored and accessed, how it's lost, and how the neuroplasticity we experience as children might be recreated in later life. Therefore, as I finished In War Times, I was amassing and dipping into a new research library, which is always a very exciting thing for me, this time not about World War II, but about recent memory research. Eric Kandel's In Search of Memory was one of these books, and his research on how memory is formed in ellipsia, a sea snail, is applicable to human memory as well. At the same time, I recall the psychology class I took in 1970 at Virginia Tech, which has been a hotbed of research using mice. I was expecting Freud and Young and R.D. Lang, and instead I got chilling lectures about millions of maize or light or food-trained mice who were then sacrificed, incidentally, by a friend of mine who got to choose their means of death. I'm not sure if he was paid by the mouse or by the hour, and I did not inquire. I didn't realize that the research was groundbreaking or in any way applicable of, to, to humans, um, all of which w was true, but it definitely put me off psychology for a long time, during which I did a double major in philosophy and English to doubly ensure that I was not preparing for a long and profitable career. Recent research using mice has been used to support the hypotheses and proposed processes of biologically transportable memory, as in how to run a maze. Uh, this premise is debated with dueling research, and it's all fascinating to a science fiction writer. Memory research in general is hot right now. 
so-called memory drugs are manufactured, prescribed, and sold. Sometimes they're called smart drugs. You've probably heard about those. Kandel's excellent book led me to speculate on how enhanced and transportable human memory might function if moved to another species. Why a dog? It was the character's choice, and you will see why. I suppose the roots of such a story could be construed as being cyberpunk, but to me it falls more into the realm of how we may, in the near future, be able to enhance our learning abilities and avoid the tragedy of Alzheimer's and other memory-impairing diseases, and at the same time end our ancient human predilection for war. The genesis of the characters, setting, and all the other elements that eventually gel into a work of fiction are manifested in the text, but for me have receded into that labyrinthine place we call memory. Kathleen Ann Gunn was born in Cincinnati, Ohio in 1952. The setting of her first and more surrealist novel, the New York Times notable Queen City Jazz. In the 60s, a family moved to Hawaii. The setting of her Arthur C. Clarke Award finalist, The Bones of Time. Then came Mississippi Blues, Crescent City, Rhapsody and Light Music. The last two being Nebula Award finalists. Her last novel, In War Times, won the Campbell Award in 2007. In War Times takes place in the USA, England, Germany and incorporates the verbatim memories of her father, Thomas E. Gunan. Kathleen has also published about 30 short stories, a collection which will be published by Pierce Publishing in 2011. Like I say, fan of Ted Chang's right up there. Kathleen Angunen is there right behind him. This writer is fantastic. Please enjoy this. You don't have to enjoy it. You will enjoy this story. This is a great, powerful story. You can find her webpage at gunen.com. That's G-O-O-N-A-N.com. And she blogs over at www.gunen.com forward slash blog. It is narrated by the fabulous Jeff Mincelli, who is a computer security and forensic geek living in South Louisiana. He also does voiceover commercials, podcasts and the like. He spent most of his spare time playing around with home automation gadgets and chasing his... It's actually two-year-old daughter now around the house. Jeff did the Jeremiah Talbot's Captain Blood's booty, which was fabulous. And we got loads of emails regarding just how good that was. So the Starship Sova and her oral delight is so proud to present. Memory Dog by Kathleen Ann Goonan. She is always busy, and today the temperature is dropping. So she splits wood, and I lie next to her, paws outstretched, belly on cold ground, panting, breath outflowing, white, memory huge and bleeding, not keeping to one track, mammalian but skipping, skipping. She is ferocious with energy. She is mad. The chips fly everywhere, and so do the split logs, splinter, 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 kindling. The insides of trees smell sweet, sharp. Arnold Wentworth watches from his wheelchair at the window, She is not angry at him. We brought him here. It was an arduous journey. But my kind likes journeys. Their imperativeness pulls us, gives us purpose. We know we will find you, eventually. Take us for a ride. Throw us out of the car and drive off. We will think you made a big mistake and make it home again. Split in long crunch of log fiber. She does not know me, but I know her. 
She used to be different, and I was too. I am her memory device, but she has lost the key. This happened before our memories were beamed down to us, among us. Our thoughts, our feelings, re-edited and re-cut events, some true, some false, but all completely manipulative, emanate from the all-over station in a constant flood. Some of us knew it was coming, or at least suspected, and took steps. The three of us in our strange symbiosis are immune, but we have to live out here, alone. People would notice, and there are those who want to find us. A pale flare curves against the gathering storm clouds. It comes from Evans Ridge, which used to be a tourist town, but which is now a rebel stronghold. They have a missile launcher hidden in a bread delivery truck. At least that's what Jake says. I even hear the small pop when the missile hits the floater, but she cannot. Her senses are dimmer than mine. I would not have guessed how many people just wanted, needed, an excuse to use weapons. Everything went to hell fast. Overnight, it seemed, and everywhere. Individuals joyously got out their guns, knives, bombs, and missiles. Nations happily suspended diplomatic relations and declared war. We are safe here, at least today. Elizabeth still believes that she can change people, that Arthur's smacks can do that. The worst memories, the deepest, most searing, and most universal, are inside a small protective bubble. The bubble is inside of me. She has no idea. Perhaps I am loving this too much, watching her, being with her, putting off what needs to be done. But I am in heaven. I hear it before her, the low sound of the truck engine, the hiccup of the driver shifting gears, and jump up, stiff, growling. Alerted, she lowers her axe and stands, waiting, wondering. Is this the time? She picks up the pistol she left on the rock next to the chopping block. Who is it, girl? Get him, Daisy. By now, I've recognized the sound of Jake's truck. Relax, and run down the steep hidden road, wagging my tail. Jake, a local farmer that Elizabeth has known since she was a teenager, brings us supplies. Food, gasoline for the generator so we can save the propane in the big buried tank, and local news. Not regularly. The dead-end, tree-hidden dirt road below us also goes to property he owns. So it is far more likely that the smoke from our wood stove would give us away than Jake's visits. But this has been a vacation hideaway for years, so we could be anyone. Jake understands the need for not revealing who we are. I was a cast-off, taken for a ride, thrown out of the car, but I came back. I will always come back. I am a dog. Rain strikes the leaves, making them shiver. Fall is almost over, and they are few. By tomorrow, according to the weather news that is so submerged in my brain that I no longer have access to it deliberately, the trees will be cloaked in ice. Jake gone, Elizabeth continues to split wood, glancing at the sky nervously. Weather is just about the only kind of uncorrupted television information she can get now. The rest of television, a million stations, with no exaggeration, is sheer entertainment, even what they call the news. I call it the all-over station, because every station and all of the news is the same, essentially. The weight of all-over draws everyone in, together, 
the same way a hearth fire would. It is almost impossible to resist. It is so full of death and murder and pain that we take it for granted that this is the way of the world and nothing can be done. They are wrong. Truth comes in the form of news pods, released into the air, and drawn hither and yon by the magnetic calls of those who swallowed the black market pill that gives them access to a million independent potters. They call these news pods smacks. You get smacked with the truth every once in a while. The pod, an electromagnetic bundle of information, smacks your face. Really, just a light caress. And then true news, if you believe the source, unfolds within you. Arnold Wentworth was a smacker, one of the most well-known and respected. The smacks were in the air, tangible things, like seeds adrift in the wind, after we all knew that it was truthlessness on the airwaves. He composed and sent smacks, and they were not the right smacks because they too often told the truth. He was Elizabeth's mentor, and her fury and her wit brought him here. Many people believed Arnold Wentworth, so many that he was considered to be a threat to the government and tortured. Millions of people worldwide took the Arnold Wentworth pill. They were disseminated on the black market, all based on the deepest trust, and Arnold, over the years, had earned that trust. Now only Elizabeth has Arnold's smack code. Only she can release his smacks. I am a forbidden creature, or at least I would be in all over. My brain is my entire body, every bit of it pressed into many functions at once. For I am a memory dog, the only one of my kind. I am adrift in places and thoughts that are not really here. Here is the quickly bearing branches, the lake marsh behind with ice creeping across its surface, the low gray sky and the gray geese flying, honking, saying simply, Go, go, go. Their amazing brains taken up by getting there, by magnetism. Here is the pile of supplies Jake deposited on the porch before driving away. Here is the strict chop of her axe, her low, muttered, Fuck them all, which issues as rhythmically as the downblow of the blade, and it's thunk into the block beneath the split log. Fuck them all, thunk. Fuck them all, thunk. Fuck them all. The pile of split wood grows. The man watches from the window, and I am thankful that I do not have his memories, too, for they are hideous. Here is free from feeling my own memories, mostly. I still know them, though. Knowing is a form of enormous selfishness. I revel, for now, in knowing. Wendy, Jolly, Elizabeth, and me, Mike. Sometimes I remember. My name is Mike. Arnold may heal eventually. He cannot talk, not yet, but is beginning to. He had a stroke a specially administered stroke. Tears well constantly and creep down his face, and he cannot or does not bother to wipe them away. I nudge his resting hand with my long nose from time to time, and his hand sometimes stirs and rests on my head. I get little from him, but whatever I get is becoming stronger. Perhaps he is recovering. From her, I get electric anger, stabbing fury, the energy that still cannot be words. She moves quickly, 
bringing in armfuls of split wood and clonking them onto the pile next to the hot stove. It is too hot in here, but maybe it is good for Arnold. She hauls in the supplies, too, piling them up on the kitchen table, getting them in out of the rain. She was not always so angry. She was in love with Arnold. She potted lyrically to him, and the pods, I know, unfolded within him. Potent flowers of information, sharp and as intense as her, and he could not help answering. After a year of this, he left his wife, and his wife reported him out of jealousy and sadness, and the government came because of the truth of his pods, and now we are left with what once was Arnold. I am memory, and memory is pain, but I was made strong enough to bear it, for I made myself. I, the self that knows myself, cannot get out of the bargain, the deep being of my cells. Oh, I could be killed. I could die if injured. I cannot, though, knowingly cause injury to myself. I am like a robot in this regard. I did this because I so often contemplated suicide, so often thought of the tree speeding toward me as I drove, or the wrists in the bathtub, or the gun in the drawer. This dance around oblivion tired me tremendously, but with a long-regarded plan, and then, in an instant of strength and resolve, I did away with it. Rain turns to snow outside. Elizabeth plays jazz on the radio, even as the all-over station behind her fills the screen with silent written opinion-molding headlines and alerts. Right now, we hear an Oscar Peterson piece. It is a special talent of mine, one I was pleased to retain, a jazz encyclopedia. I can tell who plays, instantly, who sings. The sounds are horizontal planes that slide across one another. Mostly, they stay distinct, but sometimes, precisely, they intersect. With a dog's fine ears, augmented by songbird genes, I find my pleasure. It is not the only reason I stick with her, but it is a plus. Jazz. The wood in the stove snaps and pops. We are a joyous popping rhythm laced with the anger that is always there, that makes her movements quick and impatient, that erodes her heart with anger-generated substances. She wheels Arnold into the shower room, and I pad along behind. I hope it's warm enough now, she says, and unbuttons his shirt, unbuckles his belt, slides off his clothes, tests the temperature of the water, and rolls him under it, wheelchair and all. Water draws his gray-black curly hair straight down his face, over his eyes. Her long, blonde, pulled-back hair holds beads of water in the fine tendrils around her face. Juh, he says. Juh. Uh-huh, she says. Good. But her face does not say good. I think he is trying to say the name of his first wife, Jane. He's saying more consonants now. Guh. And then his eyes shift and he looks right at me. M-m-m-m. Elizabeth twists off the taps and grabs a towel from a pile on a nearby chair. She rubs Arnold's hair. She lifts his chin and looks into his eyes, kisses him swiftly, sighs, and gets his shoulders. Grab hold, she says, and he obediently grasps the bar in front of him and pulls himself up, shaking his pale skin sagging from his ribs, his chest hair white, although he's only fifty. They made him old. She briskly dries his back, his buttocks, and the backs of his legs, and plops a dry towel onto the wheelchair seat. Okay. 
He gasps and falls back into his chair. She's dried his face, so the wet tracks are new tears. She is gentle. Her anger abates when she touches him. I'm glad for her, and I'm sad for her. I am simply a wraith of emotion rising around her. I nudge her elbow. She pats my head absently. After she dries and dresses him, he sits on the couch. He can sit up without falling over. Every day, she makes him exercise, moves his limbs, tries to make him reach or grip, or try to repeat sounds or words after her. Cuh, he says, slowly drawing out the sound. Cuh. I lie on my side by the stove into which she had shoveled her split logs. The television is on, tuned low. She thinks it helps Arnold. All that is on is stuff. 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 Lies that they call news. Celebrities. Murders. Gossip. A low, growling sigh escapes me as I relax into the warmth. I think of Arnold's first face. When they were colleagues. Not lovers. And I was Elizabeth's husband. Are these my memories? Hers? Jolly's? I no longer know. That is what is so wonderful. It is getting too hot in the cabin. I scratch the door, she lets me out, and I lie on the porch, on guard. Mist flows in and obscures some of the details. Everything is still there, behind the mist, like brilliant red and yellow maples on a far ridge. You know they are there, you just can't see them. Think of the cloud, with its wind-driven fringes, as beautiful. Think of your mind as weather. Think of your brain as a storm. Arnold is stuck in a storm, locked, unable to move. Being a dog is a joyful thing. First, way back when, it was new. It was a memory pill. Yes, say it. Memory drug. I worked on a lot of the original research. Initially, for those who were terribly impaired... It was such a boon that its quick spread to the rest of the population could not be stopped. It was to help the people with memory deficits, which is to say, most people. And it was to help with useful memories. Where did I put the car keys? What the hell is his name? However, it of course did not distinguish between users who were terrifically impaired and the rest of us. And, most importantly, it did not sort memories as to importance. It bypassed mechanisms that do such things. It turned up all the signals. So it became the drug of choice for anyone who could lay hands on it. The possible dangers were trumpeted by the press, but if you could enhance your doctoral, legal, or high school pop quiz performance, why not? It raised the bar for everyone. Real and counterfeit pills, injections, and patches were for sale in the third world and in the high school parking lot. The world was awash in memories. They were all imperative. People wrote memoirs, previously the domain of those obsessed with the past, just to take the pressure off. The intense numinosity of memories caused constant reruns of one's life. Memory overload became a common plea in traffic accidents. The memory of a grievous wrong sharpened and would not let the wronged one rest until it was avenged. One way or another, when we are stretched out of our previous shape, we jostle the status quo in ways that we could not have predicted. So, here we all went, our memories stretched and teeming with visual, audible replays, as if we were all schizophrenics, into a well-to-be-remembered future. For some, writers, painters, musicians, those who dealt in emotions, 
the memory drug was a boon. It produced a heightening of effect. The present always led to the past, and the past was therefore always present, layered and linked and resonant with longing, love, and resolution. Or, hate, revenge, plots laid and hatched that brought to fruition and the results lived with. And lived with. Inescapably. Christian churches, with their confessions and absolution, experienced a resurgence. We were all evil, deeply evil, and could not forget it. We could only hand over the guilt to an almighty being. Or, we remembered joyous pagan interconnectedness with nature, danced in circles, and our minds floated into a golden ether of fairies, dwarves, witches, tree gods, and druids. Whatever. I'm telling you, the whole thing was a god-awful mess. It was not all bad. Some learned to control their memories. The visual used pictures or objects to set off links of associations. Meditation, emptying one's mind, became big. Our minds and memories tortured us. Forgetting was a blessing. Many people had permanent memory release modules implanted in their bodies, and some, like myself, were genetically engineered to produce the necessary enhancing chemicals. I will never forget the whole of Elizabeth's being after Wendy, our three-year-old, died. That, and my own grief, and Jolly's, is the key that I hold. It really was my fault. Because, Elizabeth screamed, after we came home from the hospital, gently ejected from the ER, and then the chapel, and then the lobby after Wendy was pronounced dead, I had taken too many memory drugs, too much of them, and could no longer pay attention to the simplest thing. Mike, you didn't even know she was out in the street. It was true. I can see the various angles of Elizabeth's furry-stretched face, her anger-stunned eyes, her chest heaving as she gasps for breath. I hear the hoarseness of her voice as it devolves into small shreds of sound. Her face is mottled red, like some pale mineral-dappled stone, and her straight blonde hair is pasted under her cheeks by tears. Her smell is of sweat, too. Sharp, one she has never had before. It tastes sour and unpleasant. This grief is memory, and it is Jolly's memory, for our collie rushed out the front door after Wendy, tried to keep her from the road, the neighbor who was also running toward her at the time told us. When we got back from the hospital, Jolly ran to Elizabeth, emitting hoarse barks, licking the back of her hand, pawing at her leg, and then jumping up, planting her paws square on Elizabeth's chest, barking like fury right into her face until Elizabeth drew Jolly tightly to her and both collapsed backwards onto a chair, Elizabeth crying, Jolly licking her face as she was never, never allowed to do, while I stood dumb, stunned, and empty. The next day, Jolly disappeared. We knew she was looking for Wendy, trying to find her and bring her back. As Elizabeth made funeral arrangements, I walked the neighborhood, and later that night, while Elizabeth sobbed, I called, Jolly! out the car window, driving slowly down nearby roads. I put up signs. The next morning, while I was walking into the dog pound, Elizabeth called my cell phone. A man just found Jolly in the ditch next to Bartello Street, down where it curves. Her voice was flat. She thought Jolly's death was my fault, too. She was probably right. 
I was supposed to fix the fence. I hadn't. I went and lifted Jolly from the ditch. He was stiff. I took him down the road to our vets and asked that he be flash frozen. They do this all the time at the vets. People don't always have time to deal with their dead pets immediately. Step back, he said, as he lifted Jolly's shrink-wrapped body into the open freezer. But I didn't, and tears froze on my face. I was not fit to be a person. I wasn't fit to be alive at all. Not anymore. I shared Elizabeth's opinion in this matter. After everything was done with, after we buried Wendy, after I realized that Elizabeth would never speak to me again, and with good reason, I watched her take up with Arnold, who was a good man, an exemplary man, a man dedicated to the good of humankind, and not addicted to memory pills. You would never find him standing in a daze in his kitchen, being perhaps his grandmother cutting carrots in another high-ceiling marble-tabled kitchen while his toddler wandered out the door. He was definitely not me. I decided to become a dog. I would doggedly survive. Perhaps at some point I could be of use to Elizabeth. Oh, of course, the form and deep being of many creatures were inviting to me, as I contemplated. The long life and intelligence of elephants, of parrots, the sinuous interior brilliance of panthers, snow leopards, tigers. Yet I could have them all, in this form, the dog. No mammal, save the human, kills itself. But there was no room for big cats, or elephants where I was going to live, in this world of humans. Was it a penance of sort? I cannot say I do not remember, for that is about all I do. But there are rooms I do not go into. I do not go into the room of Wendy. There is no understanding in that room. I admire Elizabeth. She lives in the room of Wendy. Still, that is her anger. I cannot get in the door because I'm a dog. Wendy, the true real room of Wendy, is in the smack I so carefully composed, encased in its protective bubble. I have locked myself out. If I went in the door, I would kill myself. And that is something I cannot do. Understanding is in the hands of God, and God does not exist. There are many logical conundrums on the threshold of Wendy's door, and as a dog, I am free to not examine them. It was not really much of a decision. I remember those days as great swaths of scent, of grease-smelling spring wind that Wendy would never again smell, the green-rich sea smell, fresh and mineral damp when I lifted a handful of wet sand to my eyes to see what she had seen, translucent prisms of obsidian green, pure, true brown, golden, sharp-planed bits that dried and blew away before I could move, so perhaps I was already inclined to dog, thinking in dog memories of overwhelming smell. I guess that somewhat distantly I was considering my options and can see so much more clearly now what I was thinking, as I have said, the elephant, the cat. Animals seemed the only option to change shape, to give misery a different vessel, a different shape from which to bounce its energy about, as if emotion were the straight geometry of billiards. On this day, I saw a dog running down the beach between a man and a woman. Their child ran with the dog and grabbed his long black tail. The dog twisted free, frolicked, and leapt, and seemed happy 
I craved the relief of what looked like simple happiness. That afternoon, I drove back from the beach, went to the big mart, and loaded up on dog food. Ellie Wills was in the next line. We all shop at the big mart now, even for a gallon of milk. I thought your dog died. Then she looked aghast and embarrassed for an instant, remembering my greater loss. I pretended not to see the look. I'm thinking about getting another one. What kind? Huh, what kind? A dog-like dog. Wag, bark, happy. Another collie. Collies are stupid. I'd never much liked Ellie Wills, but for an instant I purely loathed her for her total insensitivity. No, they're not, I said, bristling in advance for my future self and for dear Jolly. It was the right choice for various reasons. I wouldn't want to be a menace. Collies are kind, not inclined to viciousness, and filled with love, like me, bursting with love, with infinite flavors of regret. I wiped my eyes. Uh, I've got a cold. I know, she said. I'm so sorry about Wendy. It's not your fault. I reeled with memories, not just of Wendy, but of everything. Everything echoing into forever, and reached for the seventy-five pound bag and hauled it onto the belt. Any coupons? asked the checkout clerk. Love has no pride. I needed Elizabeth. She did not need me. She despised and hated me. She wished me dead. So when I left the note saying that I was leaving and that she should not try to find me, I am sure she did not grieve. She was probably relieved. There was penance, too, in my decision to become a dog. I had enough reason to feel guilty, certainly. Enough for several men for several lifetimes, even without the weight of Wendy. Because of what we did to the snails, the mice. We transferred memories from one mouse to another. Memories of how to run the maze. Then we killed them, casually, by the thousands. It was the job of a grad student, his or her choice about how to do it. But that was long before the drug, long before my addictive hypermnesia, the opposite of amnesia, remembering everything, having even mental events that you think are memories, but which are not. Dr. Lorenzo, at first horrified, finally agreed after hearing my whole story, after knowing who I was and what I had done and why it was so necessary to me. I had read of her work for years in journals. We had spoken at the same international meetings. I offered myself as an experiment. There was no paper trail, none at all. So both of us knew that actually it was too subjective to be any kind of an experiment. It was a favor to me. For all she knew, she was murdering me. But I easily convinced her that otherwise I would kill myself anyway, because it was true. It took me several months in the lab to distill the essence I was after. Almost all of us were able to feel grief and loss, but it is so painful and overwhelming that we soon become numb in various degrees. Some of us can kill others without feeling any remorse. We can justify it. Others of us are capable of causing pain on a large scale. We command armies and call it necessary and civilized. What might change this? Arnold Wentworth had his ideas. I had mine. Becoming a dog. I cohabited gently, slowly. 
The initial work took weeks. It was a matter of the cells remembering. Deep memories, cross-species, the work of a brilliant memory master, experimental and forbidden. And, remember, we could do specific. So, from Jolly, Frozen Sensor Death, I got Jolly's Wendy and Jolly's Extreme Grief. We could also do a long-term change. We could fix an emotion, a vision, a scene in long-term memory by precisely implanting specific molecules of one brain into the other. In the early days of memory work, we learned how to change the neurostructure of mice in various ways. We took out genes or inserted them. We traced protein encoding. We traced the precise mechanisms by which long-term memories survive in the brain. By then, we were able to transfer exact memories. How to run the maze. What color symbolized an exit. What sound meant food from one mouse to another. Behavior was then replicated without the experience needed by the first mouse to form the memory. That was the dawn, years ago. There were many more steps to go, and much more to learn before we reached the final, complex product. Me. The puppy had preparatory genetic work done. The infusion of identity structures. Mine. Distilled from a myriad of information Dr. Lorenzo received from my human body. I am, perhaps, a precursor. Perhaps not. My reasons for becoming a dog are unique, and neither the process as it stands now, nor the product, would be approved by any government. The puppy, so new, welcomed me. Not surprised, and our neurons intertwined quickly, for she was growing like all new things, swiftly, her brain branching and branching. I thought I could keep out of her way. I had no real wish to use her body in any way other than to be near Elizabeth. But it was inevitable that we become one. It was just my way of driving into a tree. I am happy with the results. I am always happy. Now, I am a dog. I had to learn to be a dog. At first it was awkward to have four legs, but then it was liberating. I surprisingly remembered what it was like to be human and a toddler like Wendy, so low to the ground. As I tumbled along on four short legs, I remembered my own two short ones, the sense of growth and maturity I'd felt when finally I could balance on one leg, take the next step, then balance on that leg, and take the next step, instead of putting both feet on each step at the same time. In six months, I had grown to be an almost full-sized female collie, tricolored. I was cast off, taken for a ride, thrown out of the car, for the wrong I did, for my deep negligence as a human, but I came back. But it was my own ride, and I will always come back now. I am a dog. One of Dr. Lorenzo's grad students released me near my old house, as agreed, though she hadn't a clue about anything. The student loved me. She'd walked and fed me for weeks. She'd scratched behind my ears, patted my side heartily, called Dr. Lorenzo three times to make sure I can't just leave her here. Dog-like... I loved the student so much that I wouldn't have minded staying with her, but she obeyed my previous instructions, sternly relayed by Dr. Lorenzo, and put me out eventually. As you see, this was no remedy for my problem, as I had hoped. Already the minutia of memory crowded round, but it was intimate memory, the memory of learning how to control one's own body, 
the second sensory explosion my own consciousness, my own identity, had experienced. My love of the world returned, and my guilt receded, for a time. First, I walked doubtfully down the sidewalk. Next, I trotted, and then galloped. Liquid memory, a mere outline of a dog, through which flowed images, smells, imperative, striking me fully in the brain, loudly, immediately, like a live symphony orchestra. The spring earth was thawing, rich and damp. I scrambled beneath the fence, using the same hole Jolly used to escape, which I ought to have boarded up, but, assailed with too much memory, paradoxically forgot to. I ran to the basement crawlspace door, pushed away its rotted door, and bellied inside. I ripped through the industrial-strength plastic bag I'd wrapped the dog food in and crunched down on the brown, intensely delicious nuggets. Upstairs I heard Lester Young on the stereo, and Arnold. "'What's for dinner?' he said. "'What's for dinner? The bastard didn't even cook for her.' I barked. "'What's that?' she said, and her voice thrilled me. A million instants like stars shot through me in the underhouse darkness.' her. I barked again, and ran around to the front door, squealing and jumping off onto the door. She opened it and laughed. Look, Arnold, a collie! I see. She opened the door and let me in. I ran to every corner, sniffing joyfully, whining and emitting small barks, smelling her and smelling Elizabeth and Wendy and Jolly and our whole lives. I smelled this, that, and the other thing. I was bursting with the joy and sadness of the past. I ran into every room, her office, mine, the kitchen, faster than fast, at four-legged dog speed, scrambling and twisting, as if bringing a gazelle to the ground. Elizabeth laughed hard, with great joy. I shook myself into a frenzy, wheeling and barking until Elizabeth grabbed me and said, Hey, hey! She looked into my eyes, and for an instant I thought she knew. But how could she? "'Someone's lost him,' said Arnold. "'We need to call the Pound.' "'Her?' "'She doesn't have a collar.' S "'Someone will be looking for her. "'Dogs like this don't grow on trees.' "'No, we grow in labs.' "'I licked her face. "'I swallowed her memories. "'A rumble arose in my chest, "'and I transmuted into a sharp bark. "'Elizabeth reached down, "'ruffled my head fur, "'and I happily danced.' All dog, threw in a few leaps. Elizabeth said, she stays. Arnold's scent was slightly sour. He smiled. Whatever you want, honey. His eyes, when he looked at me, were irritated. I didn't care. He was not the boss. She was. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? 
For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Memory is anatomical change, period. Neuronal change, synaptic change. Aplesia, a giant marine snail, has few brain cells compared to mammals, and they are comparatively large. It was a good subject for early memory studies. It is a beautiful marine animal, its head arching up and around, topped by what looks like fronds of a stubby palm. However, it is usually ensconced in its shell, so you can't see all of that. It is a hermaphrodite. Training creates actual anatomical changes. Memory is physical. I wanted to remember love. I wanted to remember Elizabeth and Wendy. I wanted to remember the extraordinary web of being in which I had lived, and because I did not know whether or not the experiences that you or I might call bad, the disappointments, the setbacks, might have contributed to the overall flavor of that being, like a wash of one pigment over another gives a watercolor depth, or a pinch of spice gives a dish an indefinable flavor, and because, let's face it, I was a memory addict. I wanted it all. All in the skull of a dog. The heads of true collies are not pinched, and they are not hurting dogs, so their memories have to do with the big picture, and being bossy, and with speed, direction, and following complex signals. Their long, flowing coats are beautiful. I chose to be a female because I did not want to be reflexively aggressive, because I wanted to be like Jolly. Lying at Elizabeth's feet, I knew I had made the right choice. After they were in bed that first night, I padded to the door of Wendy's room. This was not the room of Wendy that is inside me. The room I made, the room I can't go into, the room full of pain. This was her real, lovely, physical room, frilly purple and green like she wanted. Moonlight stretched across the bed, washed the pillows. Rumble, her beloved teddy bear, lay there, stub arms outstretched, his black bead eyes facing the window. I whined. I stretched out on my belly, put my chin on the floor. I howled and was surprised. I did not know I could howl. It was a truly mournful sound. A soul-releasing, oh! God damn it, Arnold's voice. Shh. It's okay. Get back in bed. I still had teeth. I could bite if I decided to do so. My growl was low, but sufficiently ferocious. When I heard Elizabeth's moans through the doorway, they didn't bother to close the door, I could have shot through that doorway, leapt onto the bed, and tore out Arnold's throat. 
Rapid pictures filled my mind. Elizabeth's naked legs parted for me. I padded to the kitchen, tipped over the garbage can. What is that? I heard Elizabeth say. And then whatever Arnold did made her shriek with delight. I teased a trail of chicken bones and rotted vegetables across the kitchen floor and cracked the delicious bones between my teeth. Bacon grease drooled onto the rug beneath the dining room table. Deeply satisfied, I trotted back to Wendy's room. Without pausing, I leapt onto her bed, curled up, took rumble in my mouth, and fell asleep, my mind a train wreck, a bonfire, an amusement park of memories, a slideshow. I saw it all going one way, each snapshot, Elizabeth's slow joy at realizing our love, a lazy morning in a sunstruck St. Paul hotel room, her smile across the table at the dinner, the day she found out she was pregnant. Fast, flash, flash, flash. Now, I was going away, seeing it all from the other side. We have to take her to the pound. Arnold's voice was reedy when it rose. She's ruined the rug. It's a very good rug, isn't it? He sounded hopeful. I was sitting rather far away, in the living room, half behind a chair, trying to be small. Elizabeth was on her knees with some cleaner and paper towels. It was her grandmother's oriental rug. It's all right. I don't think so. She looked up at him and said sharply, It's my rug, Arnold, and it's all right. A thrill shot through me. I have two brains. My human brain is evenly distributed throughout my dog body, intertwined with everything else. It makes what we call thinking slow, since distances to be traveled are greater. This was a decision I made. I wanted to be able to control my body easily, and therefore the dog brain needed to be where it has been for hundreds of thousands of years. The dog brain is on tap. It is ready. But where was I? What I? It was a religious experience. I was, and am, in awe of Elizabeth. I was able to lie next to her on the bed, feel her hand absently play with my fur as she read, which is something that my human self would have never felt again. I was, I am, the future I never would have had. I am life beyond death. After a week, I don't want that dog in the bed, Arnold succumbed. You don't want the dog in the bed, but I do, she replied, calmly, firmly, and leaving him with no doubt about his choices. We are in that heaven that all saints so longed for and predicted, pens scritching across rough vellum and damp towers, heads bent beneath sputtering candles, heat, ample light, plenty, near infinite knowing. But man is still enemy to himself, and man must still find God within himself to go beyond the oppression, the killing. And first, he must find killing wrong. That seems to be a sticking point in some parts. What if, suddenly, we all simply could not kill? If it was impossible? Memory drugs might do this. I left my grad students with a particular prototype. If everyone had it, if it became active at once, all wars, all firing, all missiles would stop. Men in bars, 
poised to cut during the Saturday night knife and gun club boys' night out, would drop their knives. Women in the Air Force with a load of cluster bombs would overfly without pressing the button. Any death would be accidental, not intentional. No revenge. How would we pass our time? How would we spend our money? Oh, there were a million problems with this drug. No probability that it would be brought to production in my lifetime. It was just a dream. And there was just one dose. One infinitely expandable dose, which had never been tested. I distilled it into pure smack quality intensity and kept it. Then handed the information over to Juanita, the brightest and best, the most committed, the most feisty, the one who could muster the most money, the most likely to succeed. I did have a plan. What was it? The memory key, yes, that's it. My dog self sometimes forgets. When I remember Juanita, I feel hopeful, glad. But I am a dog. Gladness is in my nature. I found that I could read. At first, it was slow going. Elizabeth had left the newspaper on the floor, open to the Sunday funnies. I tried lying down on top of the paper and looking at it between my paws, but I had to back up and finally I stood up and looked down at it. This was especially painful. I imagine that the stroke patients might feel this way, the loss of an especially treasured skill. But then it came together. A sharp bark. I danced. It was just the brain slowness, the long journey of the information. Look, said Arnold. You think that silly dog could read? Elizabeth glanced over and looked at me very thoughtfully. I reached down with my head, grasped the edge of the dry newspaper in my teeth, held the page down with my paw, and tore it in half. I am just a silly dog. What is printed on the paper means nothing to me. No, she said, jumping up and grabbing the newspaper. But she continued to look at me thoughtfully just the same. Well, I no longer had to worry about such things. I was a dog. Wendy, still, was everywhere in the house. I ran through it every morning as if a spell struck me. I sniffed frantically, disconsolate, while Arnold worked, composing his dangerous, seditious smacks, which said that the government had been subverted by evil men, and that we must all take action. His smacks were, and are, full of specificity. His research was superb. I know, I was quite aware of him before Wendy died. He was Elizabeth's colleague. Her smacks were quieter but smoothly ferocious, with sharp, sudden legal barbs, like those of sea creatures, emerging to puncture arguments and positions. They really were two of a kind. Occasionally he said, lie down and be quiet, but didn't move from his chair or even move his eyes from his screen. That particular morning, Elizabeth was out teaching. The house, with pale winter sunlight striping the dark wood floor, seemed empty. Arnold was invisible to me, I sensed that things were no longer all that good between Arnold and Elizabeth, but I didn't care. I was deeply happy just to be near her. In the afternoon, I jumped up on Wendy's bed, took Rumble gently in my jaws, and stretched out, aching. Arnold came to the doorway and looked at me. You shit, he said. You think I don't know what's possible. I'm working on it. As he walked away, shaking his head, he muttered, 
But sometimes a dog is just a dog, right? Right, of course. I'm a dog. I barked. I'm a dog. 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 Shut up, he yelled, and went back into his office. A few hours later, I heard him shout, God damn it! He staggered from his office and leaned against the doorframe of Wendy's room. I rolled my eyes to look at him. He let loose with a sob, dropped his head into his hands, reeled, and walked away. I ran to his side, curious, a dog, overwhelmed by his scent. His pure political goodness engulfed me. How did this smell? Oddly, like the ocean. Several kinds of sea. An openness. This apparently did not translate into personal openness. He was jealous of a dog, and that stunk. But he was famous for this sea goodness, and for the sheer efficaciousness of his sea wrath, a pounding ceaseless wave of good sense he revealed daily from relayed locations, helping keep people open-minded. In a world where we could choose to become dogs, we could quite easily be made into dogs without choosing, right? Right. And that was just a small taste of the nasty possibilities, so he was quite necessary. He also emanated the scent of something bad has happened. Worry, defeat, fear. I returned to the bed, jumped onto it, and bit down tightly on Rumble. Elizabeth came home flushed and angry. You wouldn't believe what they've done. She slammed the door behind her. I dashed to her, danced around, carefully, so carefully, not jumping up. She crouched down, hugged me. She was crying. They let me go. Fired me. I have tenure, but... Oh, hell. Then Arnold was there pulling her away, up, giving her a long, tall hug, saying, I know, honey, I know. Look, we have to get out of here. I've been packing. It's my fault. It's me. After I crawled into Wendy's bed, I rested my head on Rumble, who was very damp. It was not Elizabeth's fault. It was not Arnold's fault. Every bad thing in the world was my fault. My memory fault. My memory addiction fault. But I would fix it. Outside, the sky was raining hate. Small pictures of Arnold descended and popped, and neighborhood kids led the police to our house and they dragged him away. I realized that he had been in hiding. There would have been better places. Elizabeth was magnificent, promising many specific forms of legal action, even when they threatened her, too. They did not take Elizabeth, which, I think, made her more angry. They only took Arnold, said that he was a traitor, and that they did not need any further legal justification for taking him. They shoved him in a truck that had government insignia on it, and that was that. We stood on the wintry stoop. The gray sky backgrounded darker gray trees, and the mundane houses of the neighborhood, their yards yellow and browned, seemed the saddest place in the world. My dogness kept back the surging memory of seeing Wendy lying on the street on a similar day. I was that strong, that much dog. My humanness, my mikeness, firmly tamped into my paws, the tip of my tail, my entrails, 
and I knew what she was thinking. Loss. Nothing but loss. She collapsed onto the stoop, put her head in her hands, and cried. I pressed next to her, licking her salty tears. She put her arm around me. I was sad for her. I was glad of the moment, deeply satisfied, and some yearning was settled for just that tipping instant. Finally, I could be of some use to her, if only as furry animal into which she could press her face and sob, and hug me so tightly that my entire being rejoiced. They were watching Elizabeth, of course, her information paths, with their computers, but she knew the triggers as she had defended clients against their prying. Besides, they have so many people to watch. She knew the back alleys to the back alleys, all the ways to make her searches innocuous, all the ways to subvert their attempts, and she found out where they took Arnold. She talked to me, of course, all the time. She told me everything she did and everything she planned to do. She forgot to eat and became very thin and ran twice a day with me at her side and got strong. By that time, I knew that Arnold would never die, not for her. He left an entire library of smacks, she said. These people are so predictable. He said that tyrants always are. I'll only have to modify each one a bit to make it perfectly up-to-date when I release it. They will know you are doing it, I barked. I barked straight at her, standing up, as if I were talking to her. I heard each word in my head as I barked. I thought of plans. I could tear out tiny newspaper words and assemble them for her. I could talk to her if I really wanted to. No, Mike could talk to her. I knew quite well that she would throw Mike out of the house, onto the street. She would never let Mike back in. She really could not suspect who I was. She was already puzzled at times. She leaned back in her computer chair, tired and anxious. They'll know it's me, of course. If they take me, I'll be of no use. But if I do nothing, I've of goddamn little use either. Hell. For three days, then, she packed. She went into the garage and got out all of our old camping and backpacking gear, our emergency flee-the-government food about which we laughed, but nervously, when we assembled it years ago. The smells of it all threw me into ecstasies of a million hikes. One year, we hiked the entire Appalachian Trail. We started it in Georgia in the spring. Red trilliums dotted the slopes of the mountains. Our tent smelled of Gore-Tex, a few steps removed from plastic, as she unrolled it and set it up in the garage to see if it was still good, I went inside, breathed deeply, and, if I could have, I would have cried. I curled up there on the sleeping bag she tossed into the door, enveloped in a deeply scented panacea of the past. The good times. Us. I know where he is, she said, and the government is going down. It will be chaos. He won't be at all useful. He'll be killed. Here's the plan. Listening? Good dog. I've got an aunt with a cabin in the North Georgia mountains. Her name is Cecile. She's very old, hasn't gone there for years. But first, we have to get him. Why, I thought. We don't need him. My traitor tail, though, thumped in agreement, ringing against a Coleman stove she'd shoved inside. I wanted all of her. Everything, just like I had when we'd met. I wanted that still. Her first wagon ride the day she'd fallen from the monkey bars and broken her arm, the feeling she'd had when she launched from Cove Mountain into the wind, 
her arms in the hang-gliding loops, moving the bar. When we met, we'd talked and talked, trying to get to that place where we could be one, the same person. Where does memory reside? We do not know. It is a system, a process, a constant recreation. What accounts, then, for its specificity? I'd transfused blood from one white mouse to another, after giving them the memory drug. I watched the new mouse run the maze, which it had never before run, perfectly. Strange, but true. All that information, so compact, just needing the medium into which to expand. I was that medium now. I was like water. Elizabeth and Jolly and Wendy were the folded Japanese paper flower that would unfold inside me. She packed the truck, tied down everything beneath a tarp. The back seat of the truck was full of electrical equipment, which might soon be useless. Cecile had a generator and a huge buried propane tank, and when that was gone, that would be it. Elizabeth took all the money she had in the bank, all the jewelry, odd things she thought might be useful for barter. One night she went next door and traded Mr. Monroe's license plate for hours. He'll never notice, she said, bolting them onto the truck. She was ready to go get Arnold and head for the hills. Inside the hollow garage, sounds were magnified. I heard the car come up the street and jump to my feet. It was three in the morning. What is it, girl? And then she froze, too. She held me tightly and then held my mouth shut, too. Footsteps coming up the walk. A thump. The car sounds receded down the street. She hurried through the dark house, opened the front door. It was Arnold, tossed like a package under the doorstep. He was naked, bloody, bruised, curled up, moaning. Oh, no! She tried to pick him up, but he was too heavy. She pulled him onto the hall rug, slammed the door. Arnold! Arnold! He opened his eyes. They were empty, except for the tears. She had her mother's wheelchair and walker and all kinds of old folk equipment in the attic. She worked quickly, fury in every motion. From taking care of her mother, she knew how to position him, how to hoist him into the truck. When she was finished, his clothes were packed. He was wearing a diaper. Wheelchair and walker were in the back of the truck. He stared straight ahead. The last thing she put in the truck was Rumble. Slowly, sadly, almost as if she wanted to leave Rumble, leave Wendy behind. She sighed and locked the house door. She said, Come on, girl. I jumped into the truck, between her and Arnold, and sat up so I could see where we were going. Everything seemed in order outside. The fast food chains were doing a brisk business. The parking lots at grocery stores were crowded, like before a blizzard. But there was no hysteria. Perhaps no one really understood how long this might last. It was a government coup. Them against us. It was spreading, as if a virus had engulfed the entire world. Maybe it had. Spread by all over. After we had driven for most of the day, she pulled off a narrow country road and lifted a portable podcaster from the back seat, tucked it beneath her arm. She thrashed through the woods for a few minutes, found a flat rock, set it up, and turned it on. It is a magnetic thing, the potting, the smacks. It is a precise frequency, except that it is constantly changing in order to elude the government, and you swallow it, and it disseminates into your cells and stays there for a while. That's all. You are an antenna, constantly conducting a blisteringly fast search, and you get Arnold's new smack, or whoever's. Arnold's, as I said, was by far the pill most swallowed, internationally. He was the most true, most courageous, 
most energetic, the most dangerous. This setup would just help disguise the source. She stood up straight and dusted off her hands. There. They'll find it pretty soon, maybe, if they have time. It's kind of like a chain of bubbles, though. One will release several, and those will release several. Time delayed. Some for years. Mike and I went to Czechoslovakia right after it was returned to independence in 1989. There was a museum exhibit there of all the lost years, the years during which they'd been allowed no news. We called it Lest We Forget. Well, this is my Lest We Forget. My laugh and my tears were just a bark. A slight snow spits outside the cabin. Elizabeth has made it cozy and warm for Arnold. It is too hot for me but I would rather stay in here with people than go outside and be comfortable. I am a dog. I lie on the couch so I can look over Elizabeth's shoulder while she works. She is in touch with a hacker. I think he's in the Netherlands, she says to Arnold. His name is the great and powerful you. You get it? All of us? One of us? But maybe you as a woman? She takes a sip of coffee and resumes her work. All the hackers want to figure out a universal hack that will leave us bare to one strong message, one big smack. But what will that message be? Most hackers don't really care. They just want to open everything up. For them, it's a game, a challenge. For most people, it's the ultimate fear, mind control. But you seems to be addicted to Arnold's smacks. She believes in him, in his messages of the importance of truth and transparency. Every day she posts somewhere about the latest smack that Elizabeth has brought up to date and released. What is the truth? I know what the truth is. Truth is loss, death, grief, and pain, and knowing the preciousness of each individual. Truth is living always on that edge. Truth is trying to prevent all that from happening. Humans have a special way of forgetting truth, of not thinking about what others might feel. Have I said it? Memory is physical. Knowing can be changed. I slowly lick the white top of my paw, straighten the curly fur to smooth lines, feel with my tongue the smack bump inside. It is just a tiny bump, but it is powerful. It contains the essence of what I distilled in the lab. My brain is storm. Much later, when it is dark, Elizabeth is making dinner. I lie on the floor, still licking the smack bump. It itches. In front of me is the local newspaper, which Jake brought and Elizabeth tossed onto the floor. There is news of local militias, an ad for henfresh eggs on Angle Ridge Road, obituaries. I move my head so I can see the next page. Me, says Arnold. I start as if I've had an electric shock. My tongue pauses. My ears swivel. I turn my head to look at him. I can't help it. I know the weird expression on his face is a smile. How would he have known? I told you, his research network was astounding. He could find out anything he wanted to. He worked on many edges. Maybe he had a pod about what I'd done waiting in his library. He might even have tracked down Dr. Lorenzo, held her feet to the coals, forced her to talk. It doesn't matter now. I am asleep on the couch. But her sudden snort wakes me around one in the morning. Ha! she breathes. Her computer screen glows. The little keys are lit from within. 
The only other light is from the stove, where the fire flickers with soothing snaps. Arnold snores on the bed. You did it, she breathes. She made the hack. Elizabeth starts the download. Now we've got them. Every fucking person in the world, no matter what kind of smack they usually get, no matter whose pills they've swallowed, and we've got to get them first. She watches the screen, sighs. Damn, this computer is slow. It is dawn. I am on the porch. Elizabeth inside, frantically modifying pods, as she does this time of day. Usually we go for a long hike and put them in the relay in the woods. It is stupid and dangerous, but she says that if she doesn't do this, she might as well not live anyway. Today is different, though. Today, she has the hack. Something, something, has me on my feet and drives my memories down to the tips of my paws, crushes them flat with pure and absolute present. My barks thunder, and I am like an arrow running to the approaching vehicle. I meet it as it rounds the sharp bend at the top of the hill that keeps us hidden, and leap to one side. The soldier is alone in the jeep and surprised by me. There is no door on his jeep, and I leap onto him, going for his throat. He is yelling, and I smell the cold metal of his pistol. I am a whirlwind, but his other hand reaches the gun and draws. I bite his hand as the pistol goes off. Elizabeth is on the porch, her shotgun raised. Get away, she yells, and I know she means me, but I cannot. I am a pure and total dog, with only a wisp of human somewhere. She fires the rifle. He puts the jeep in reverse and flees. And I know it's time. Are you all right? She runs to me, hugs me. I ignore her. I am chewing, licking, gnawing. Is it a bullet? No. The bullet went somewhere else, and it does not matter. It only makes a small sting, an ache. She reaches into the bloody hole I gnawed and pulls out the blood-smeared bubble, a standard smack-storing bubble. Uh, smack? She is stunned. Yes, I bark. She stares at me hard. What are you? She kicks me. Some kind of spy? I run up to the cabin, up the stairs. She follows. They'll be coming soon, Arnold. Arnold, we have to leave. And Daisy... At the door, she whirls on me, still holding the rifle. Arnold makes a grunting sound, moves his arms, makes a horrible face. I bark, bark, bark. She looks back and forth between us. Arnold begins keying. Hmm... Hmm. He can still kind of carry a tune. This is easy. The alphabet tune. All right, then, she snaps. Just one try. A, B, C, D. Oh, this is ridiculous. Hmm, hums Arnold. As always, tears creep down his face. I smell his ocean openness coming back. And then, with great difficulty, he roars. Me, me, Mike. I bark. I dance. Yes, I say yes with all my dog tools. I grab Rumble, toss him in the air. It takes a surprising amount of energy. Mike! I brace for another kick, but she hugs me and begins to sob. Mike! Mike! Oh my God! She steps back and looks at Arnold. How is this possible? How do you know? I can see her thinking then 
thinking about all the things I'd done as a memory scientist. I nudge her pocket. The smack. She pulls out the bloody protective bubble. She grabs a knife, sets the bubble on the table, and carefully splits it open. Out it falls, the smack that I so carefully, lovingly made. I cringe back, whine. What is it? It is something I cannot do, because I am a dog. But I must. Again, I pick up Rumble, and this time just hold him in my jaws. Then I put him down and lick his face. Okay, she says heavily. Okay, something to do with Wendy. Her shoulders sag. I'll do it. Her smile is wan, and she is crying. First, Wendy goes first. She puts the smack I made into the sequence that she has prepared. The sequence is prefaced by you's hack. After a minute, the smack is ready. All she has to do is press a key to send it. On the all-over station, firing seems to have gotten heavier this morning. I am not sure why the local soldiers haven't come back. Perhaps there is too much disarray. The television says so. The long, grinding, universal violence is creeping upward. Always upward. A deep, low growl shakes the ground. I hear loud crackling sounds. Out the window, I see the tips of trees topple. Must be a tank, says Elizabeth. The bastards! Tuh, says Arnold. Tuh, g- He gestures towards the rifle. He is healing. The smack, I think, might hurry things along. I bark loudly. Go, go, go! She does it. She makes the smack, biological information now converted into electrical signals, rush down the wires at the speed of light just as quickly as in the air, relaying, disseminating, smacking. A tank slowly comes round the bend, ponderously slow and stops fifty yards from the cabin. A gun on top rotates, adjusts straight at us. F- yells Arnold. And then... The top opens and three men climb out. They hug each other. They are crying. The same thing is happening on the all-over station. A reporter is in some war-torn downtown where suddenly everyone looks around, bewildered. Two men fling down their rifles. The same look of awful grief comes over their faces. Tears flow. They grab one another, reel around. The television reporter is weeping too. What's going on? She cries out in a parody of reporter's false concern. What is going on, sir? She shoves her microphone in someone's face. Sir, how do you feel? I, I, oh my God. He falls to his knees. Elizabeth grabs me, hard. Wendy, she whispers. It's Wendy, oh God. I remember, oh, my sweet baby. All that grief and longing... Now everyone feels it. Everyone feels the loss of just one child, just one precious person. But there is no revenge, no anger, because this is not just our grief, not just Elizabeth's and mine distilled and refined and full of blame. It is Jolly's, pure, whole, loving, and longing. That smack and its heavy burden and the chemicals it was secreting are gone. Gone from my blood. Mike is leaving too, ebbing away. It is good. It is as I planned. I did not plan the bullet, but it doesn't matter. 
I am, of course, happy. My God, Elizabeth gasps. She just stares at me, then falls and hugs me. Hugs me. You genius! I glimpse for a brief instant a look of horror on her face as she draws back her hand, sticky with blood before I close my eyes, deeply satisfied. This exquisite grief, this unwillingness to kill, this respect for all others, may last for years, universally, making loss impossible, removing the numbness that most people live with, and leaving them raw and open and kind, unable to hurt another human, or... Someone like the wonderful wizard of you might hack it quickly, just for fun, and make everything as it was. I no longer care. I am a brilliance. Like when the sun is on water and you can't see into it. I am the brilliance of Elizabeth and of Wendy. And then I am golden grains of glad, glad, sand, blowing in the wind, free of almost all memory. All that is left of one little girl who stands there on the beach. Jolly, she calls and claps her hands. Jolly. I run to her. There you go. What a fantastic story. Do pop over to Kathleen's site. Again, there will be links on the front of the website. Don't forget, copyright is Kathleen Ann Goonans. Big thank you to Kathleen and a big thank you to Jeff. That was a great narration. I have another story from Kathleen as well, so do look out for that. Next up is Mr. J.J. Campanella. Science News for January, Jim. Greetings and salutations, ladies and gentlemen. Happy New Year, and welcome to this January 2010 installment of Science News Update. I'm your host for this evening, Jim Campanella. Um, before I get started with the science news for the evening, I just wanted to thank all my listeners out there for voting for this feature for the Sophie Awards. I appreciate your kind acknowledgement of the work I put into this craziness each month, and I can tell you that it can get to be a grind sometimes finding the time to get this done every month between family and work and my own Uvula Audio bookcasts and anything additional that Tony ropes me into. It's good to know that you're appreciated, and I dedicate my 2009 Sophie Award to all you listeners who voted for me. Uh, I better stop this before I get all teary-eyed and start shouting about how much you like me. On to the first story of the night. And this story was pointed out to be by listener Pradeep Sanders, who thought it might make an interesting topic for discussion. Thank you, Pradeep. I missed the story entirely, even though it is a very important one, I think. The story concerns Tasmanian devils. Now, what I know about Tasmanian Devils, I know from three places. One, Warner Brothers cartoons as Bugs Bunny's nemesis. Two, my kids' Wiggles songs as an animal that is just short of worship down under. And three, from a vague science story that one of my brothers-in-law mentioned several months back after hearing the previously mentioned Wiggles song. He told me that he had read, and he couldn't remember where, the Tasmanian Devils were going extinct due to some sort of horrible disease. Now, that sounded kind of interesting, but seemed fuzzy enough information to not bother to follow up on. So I didn't. Well, months later, Pradeep emailed me with a New York Times link, which contains actual details on the story, which is apparently true. It appears that without medical intervention of some kind, the wild Tasmanian devils will probably be gone by 2035. And that's not all that long. 
So what is the story then? Well, Tasmanian devils are marsupials found on the Australian island of Tasmania. The populations there have been decimated for the last few years by a weird, contagious form of cancer that seems to be killing them off. About 70% of the Tasmanian devil population has disappeared as a result of this disease. The cancer is called devil facial tumor disease. And the mystery of its origins and how it works, its horrid path of destruction, have been left unanswered so far. Well, in the January 1st issue of the journal Science, an answer has finally begun to be turned up. The research was performed by Dr. Elizabeth Murchison, who did the work in Dr. Gregory Hannon's lab at Cold Spring Harbor Laboratory in New York. Murchison and her team analyzed patterns of gene and microRNA activity in facial tumors and in healthy tissues. Now, microRNAs are small genetic molecules that help to regulate the activity of genes by helping determine whether messenger RNAs are translated into proteins or not. Messenger RNAs, if you don't remember, are those small snippets, or relatively large sometimes, of sequence that actually are passed from the DNA to the ribosome and tell the ribosome what protein to make. All of the 25 tumors that the team analyzed were genetically identical, indicating that they came from a single source, most likely a Tasmanian devil that lived about 20 years ago. That means that the cancerous disease arose from a single cell. Now, cancers are clonal in origin, meaning that all cancers start from one cell kind of going nuts and deciding that it'll keep growing out of control. Well, that means that this one devil which lived about 20 years ago, had this one single mutant cell and that it has been the source of all the cancers since. When they analyzed the microRNA signatures of both the tumors and healthy devil tissues, they found that the tumor cells most closely matched Schwann cells. Now, Schwann cells are a type of cell that forms a waxy sheath uh, around uh, nerve fibers, and that's called myelin. These cells in this myelin sheath are what are actually attacked in humans in multiple sclerosis. The myelin sheath is very important for ensuring that uh, signals pass along very quickly down nerve fibers. Now, how these cancerous Schwann cells became contagious is still a mystery, though the researchers indicate that the devils are known to be prone to cancers, but they suggest that it was just, quote, some sort of freak of nature that allowed this cancer to be stable and transmitted, unquote. Apparently, the devils attack each other and wound each other regularly in the face, so they pass along the disease in this fashion. The weird mutated Schwann cells apparently are very good at avoiding the immune system, so they're passed along and then they grow into tumors. Some of the researchers quoted in the New York Times article call this a new type of parasite that's passed along through facial wounds. Now, calling this a new parasite or a form of life, I just find a bit bizarre, and, and more than a bit titillating and, and not particularly scientific. Uh, I guess I'm not very surprised coming from the New York Times. I have to admit, though, that all of this is very strange. It is very hard to pass along cancer from one organism to another under normal circumstances. In my genetics classes, I describe how you can actually do this. But it, it can't really be done outside of a lab. And that's why cancer cannot normally go from one animal to another to another. Uh, first of all, you isolate DNA from a tumor in animal A. Then you place that DNA into cultured cells grown in a Petri dish 
from animal B. Then you look closely for some of the cultured cells to actually become tumor cells. Then you isolate these transformed cells and inject them into animal B, where they came from originally. Now, animal B will then grow a tumor because his immune system will not be quick to attack cells from this B-type animal. This process will not work if you just inject animal B with tumor cells from animal A. The immune system will destroy them quickly under those conditions. And that is what makes the devil's cancer so bizarre. It breaks a rule that geneticists thought was pretty hard and fast. At any rate, now that they know the cause of the disease, it's thought that it shouldn't be too hard to make a vaccine against it and start a major vaccination program for wild devils. Well, when I say not too hard, I really mean relatively not hard. Sounds like a massive project to me. The next article absolutely blew my mind when I came across it in one of my favorite journals, the Journal of Experimental Biology, and it's from this month's issue. Seriously, this is an amazing story that will change the way you, uh, well, see the world. According to doctors Divya Yeramili and Sonke Janssen from Duke University, sea urchins actually have vision and can see. This is not so amazing a story until you realize that sea urchins don't have eyes. For years, researchers have noticed that sea urchins don't seem to have any problems avoiding predators or finding comfortable dark corners to hide in, but they appear to do all this without any eyes. So how do they detect light? How do they see? Well, according to this new report, it appears that sea urchins may use the whole surface of their bodies as compound eyes. And the animal's spines may shield their bodies from light coming from wide angles to enable them to pick out relatively fine visual detail. Well, that was the hypothesis that Yeramili and Janssen had. If true, then it would follow that sea urchins with densely packed spines have better vision than sea urchins with sparsely packed spines. So they decided to test the vision of the purple sea urchin, Strongylocentrotus purpuratus. Now, the purple sea urchin has tightly packed spines, so they wanted to see how well they could see. The researchers placed individual sea urchins into a brightly lit area with a 6 or a 9 centimeter diameter dark disc on the wall. They then recorded 39 urchin responses to the disc at different positions around the area's perimeter. The researchers saw that the urchins wandered randomly around the area when the 6 centimeter diameter disc was in place. They didn't respond to it. However, it was different with the 9 centimeter disc. The urchins either raced toward it or fled in the opposite direction. Presumably, these urchins thought that the large disc was either shelter to hide in or an intruder of some kind, and they responded appropriately according to their own interpretation. Calculating the visual angle of the 9-centimeter diameter disc from a sea urchin's perspective, Yeramili and Janssen suggest that the sea urchin's visual resolution is at least 10 degrees. When the pair calculated the sea urchin's visual resolution based on the animal's spine density, they found that it could be as good as 8 degrees, which isn't, by the way, good enough to see a, a small 6-centimeter diameter disc, which is why they didn't respond to the smaller disc. Now, what's most surprising in this whole study is that the urchin's vision is as good as the sea nautilus and the horseshoe crab, which both have eyes. Now, that's pretty darn extraordinary for an animal that has turned its whole body into an eye. 
Okay, so let's go from some sea buggers to a slightly higher form of life. Humans. Now, on the first day of class when I teach genetics, I try to drum into the heads of my students that you can have two organisms which have exactly the same DNA, twins, and yet they may come out very different physically. One of the prime reasons for this is the environment that we all live in. Our environment affects how our genes are expressed, and even more so, which genes are expressed and when. Unless two genetically identical organisms are brought up in exactly the same environment, they will turn out differently. Hence, The Boys from Brazil, the book and movie about cloning Hitler, are pure tosh. If you did clone Hitler, those clones would never grow up into the crazed and hateful dictator who we all know and despise. That is because it is so difficult to reproduce all the environmental conditions that made the original nutter. Well, it turns out that there are immune system diseases that respond to alterations in the environment, leaving two identical twins in a situation where one may have the disease and the other one not at all. First of all, let me point out something that you may not know. It's possible to have the genetic sequence be exactly the same in two people, but have chemical alterations of those same sequences, which are not the same. The classic example of this is something called methylation. Methylation is the addition of a chemical group called a methyl to DNA sequences. Methyl groups have the same structure more or less as methane gas. At any rate, one way that cells have of turning off genes is to add methyl groups in front of them in the DNA sequence. Presumably, this keeps the enzymes that read the DNA from being able to do that very efficiently, and the genes in that area are essentially shut down. In the December issue of the journal Genome Research, Dr. Esteban Balistar of the Belvitge Biomedical Research Institute in Barcelona found that the inflammatory disease lupus responds to DNA methylation. If one twin has less DNA methylation, that leaves that twin vulnerable to the inflammatory autoimmune disease, even while the other sibling remains healthy, who has a lot more methylation. In other words, the twin with more methylation has more potentially dangerous disease genes shut down that would otherwise be active in causing the disease. This finding suggests that environmental factors determine whether genetically susceptible twins will contract lupus. Now, researchers had previously identified at least 17 different genes involved in lupus. If those genes alone were responsible for determining whether a person gets lupus, then every time one identical twin got the disease, the other one would too. But that doesn't happen. Between 40% and 75% of the time, when one twin develops lupus, the other stays healthy. And that suggests that it's some environmental factor that must trigger the disease. Now, the researchers examined methylation of 807 genes, which sounds like a huge number, but it's really not. That is a very small number of genes in the human genome of over 20,000 total. Dr. Ballastar plans to expand his search. He expects to find many other genes also have reduced levels of methylation in people with lupus. It's not clear whether twins start out with different levels of DNA methylation or if something in the environment like a viral infection triggers those changes later. One thing that the researchers did note is that the methylation patterns alone do not cause lupus. You have to have mutated genes there somewhere to begin with, 
Then it's just a question of whether the environment allows them to be turned on or not. Ballastar says, quote, an underlying genetic susceptibility must be necessary to develop the disease, unquote. Right now, there is no way that we can change methylation patterns in living cells. But if we could, then Ballastar's work suggests many future medical treatment possibilities. Ballastar says, quote, although it's really speculative in the context of autoimmune diseases, one thing about methylation changes is that they are potentially reversible, unquote. Okay, on to the final story of the night. Last month, you may remember that I had a rather strange story concerning cannabis. Well, it only seems fair to give equal time to another chemical vice this month. Yes, I'm talking about everyone's perennial and legal favorite, alcohol. In this case, the story concerns hard liquor. So for years, the urban legend has been passed from college student to college student that clear liquors, like gin and vodka, will give you less of a hangover the next day than dark liquors like bourbon or scotch whiskey. Well, someone finally decided to look into the truth of that old sophomore's tale. Dr. Damaris Rushno of Brown University, in the January issue of the journal Alcoholism, Clinical and Experimental Research, found that in a head-to-head comparison that bourbon gave drinkers a more severe hangover than vodka. The researchers recruited 95 healthy adults, aged 21 to 33, and gave them caffeine-free cola mixed with bourbon, vodka, or tonic water. Now, this experiment was performed blindly. In other words, no participant knew what they were drinking and so could not be biased later. The drinking ended when participants' breath alcohol concentrations hit an average of 0.11, which is over the legal blood alcohol limit in the U.S., The drunk volunteers were then hooked up to sleep monitors and allowed to sleep it off. At 7 a.m. the next day, the researchers aroused the subjects from bed and asked them to rate the severity of their hangovers. I have a feeling they were not quite so happy to have volunteered that morning than they were the night before, especially since the researchers did not allow them coffee, aspirin, or liquids of any kind until they spilled their guts. Uh, metaphorically, of course. Overall, the bourbon drinkers reported feeling worse than the vodka drinkers, rating higher on scales that measured the severity of hangover malaise, including headache, nausea, loss of appetite, and thirst. Of course, the control group that only drank the tonic water felt much better than anyone who drank alcohol. But I imagine that it should have been fairly clear the evening before who got the tonic water and who got the alcohol-laced drinks. Dr. Rauschenau says, quote, One reason for the different effects of vodka and bourbon is that bourbon contains 37 times more toxic compounds than vodka does, including nasty organic molecules such as acetone, acetaldehyde, tannins, and furfural. She also says that a good rule of thumb for liquors is that the clearer they are, the less of those nasty substances they contain. Now, any drinker of scotch especially wonderful single malts, will tell you that they drink scotch specifically for all those wonderful toxic chemicals that give dark liquor its taste and flavor and character. A serious scotch drinker will look down his nose at you if you hand him a glass of gin. 
In the study, both the bourbon drinkers and the vodka drinkers slept poorly compared to non-drinkers. Not exactly unexpected. The next morning, when the participants performed cognitive tests that required attention and quick reaction times, the drinkers performed worse than the non-drinkers. But the type of alcohol had no effect whatsoever on performance. Both groups of drinkers were impaired equally. So we can conclude that you may suffer less the next morning from drinking a clear liquor, but your nervous system will be just as seriously messed up. Well, that's all from me for now. As always, take care, stay away from that bottle of Canadian Club, and I hope I've inspired some of you. Until next time, this is Jim Campanella. And hey, notice there were no ant stories this month. Ha! And you guys thought I was a one-trick pony. Good night, everyone. Jim, you star, thank you so much. And that's it. That is show number 118. Put to bed, finished. I just want to, while we're here, while I've got yours, just tell you about next week's show. Next week's show, something's happened between me and Dee. We've sparked again. The, the, the fire's been ignited and we've sparked. Sparks are flying. Been, we're kind of getting together. You know, we've got the, the kind of transcriber book coming. It's planned for end of May, early June to kind of, for, for that to be released. But then we have, you know, Starship Sova Stories Volume 2, which is out. The kind of, the end, you know, well, roughly round about September, October this year. But what's going to happen next week? And it's all kind of to do with, you know, looking ahead to the future and what else we can kind of sort things out. Next week, we're going to have a clash because I did a clash with, you know, like last week, which story do you like and which story didn't, didn't you like, you know? And I guess 90%, you know, came down on the Ken Shul story. Everyone loved that story. People liked the M. John Harrison one, but, you know, it wasn't really a fair, kind of fair choice. You know, one was, like, really long, and you got right swept into it. One was a sharp, hard, bitter one, and you, did, you, you weren't quite too sure. You know, but I wanted to kind of do that. I just want to kind of have these two distinct stories and just see which one came down the winner. You know, and like it's, there was no winner, really, but Ken Shaw certainly came out on top in that respect. And I like that idea of kind of... Of doing, you know, the kind of, you know, one against the other. So next week is going to be the start as well of something new on the show. And it's probably going to happen once, I'm guessing once a month, if I can kind of pull it off, where we're going to have a, like an old school versus new school, you know, in the same show. So we're going to get, get one of the kind of classics that are out there in the kind of, you know, because I, I can't really go to see, you know, the kind of Heinlein authorities there and just say can i just have that story to play on me show and i'll play a, a modern one but in the kind of project gutenberg there's all sorts of stories from you know the big kind of hitters out there you know there's a philip k dick stories in there so what we're going to do is we're going to kind of play like an old school one and a new school you know like an up-to-date writer who's banging out you know who's pushing out kind of you know the funky new stuff and just see which one you just prefer do you know it's like in a and I think that'll be great because it'll be, you know, you'll have them smack bang, you know, one after the other. And you'd just be, it'd be a nice kind of, you know, which way do you fall? Would you like that one? Do you like the old school one? And this is all to do with, you know, like say, me and D's, we kind of get together. And D, you know, that's why he's paid the thousands and th- you know what I mean? The guy's in marketing, he's marketing manager. You know, this is why he gets paid this. He's got a little email. And they came back, Tony. 
you know, like I say, we're doing kind of starship stories, you know, how we write it, volume one, volume two. He says, why not do the classics, starship sofa stories, the classics, volume one. And I was like, wow, what a great idea. You can get, you know, like kind of say the, the Gutenberg classics there, all kind of, they're all copyright, you know, they're, they're out of kind of copyright. We can put them in like kind of a book and do it as the same kind of style as... You know the, the the books we're doing at the minute, the, star, the starships over stories ones. You know, it's slightly different. You know, like kind of have it as you know, these are the classics, volume one. You know, and you know, hopefully, I mean, we're kind of putting things together, but there's like some big names out there that are stories that is, you know, they're out there, but you might not have you know kind of read them. So we're going to play them in audio, and then eventually, you know, we're talking probably next year, April. Do you know, there might there might be. Starship Sova Stories, Volume 1, the, you know, the classics. So that's looking something to look forward to. So that's going to kind of kick off next week. We're going to have Old School versus New School. I'm also hoping next week as well, we'll I'll have the, the first of the interviews. You know, the kind of 15 questions. One, you know, the, only the kind of the, the writer changes. The questions will never change. So hopefully if I can get that pulled off as well next week, that'll be something to look forward to. So there you go. That is Oral's Lights, again, show number 118. I hope you've enjoyed it. Lots going on. I do want to make this, you know, kind of the best science fiction podcast out there. You know, like I say, I've got some great ideas still kicking around there. Hopefully, I'll keep you entertained. But the, honestly, the bottom line is, like I say in the editorial, I do appreciate you sticking around. I really do. Do you know what I mean? It's been a great help to me, this show. Do you know what I mean? And I hope it is, you know, this show has been a great help to you. You know, and just thank you from the bottom of my heart for listening to me. So means a lot. Thank you. Just like to say, good night from me. Will our heroes survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honour and artistic judgement? Next week for the next exciting installment of Starship Sofa, a valuation procedure initiated. Shuttle set for launch. Airlock will be opened in 3, 2, 1. are on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.